Welcome to Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War One at the RNOH, a Pegleg Productions podcast project created in collaboration with the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital and Radio Broccoli and funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Episode 5, August 1914. On August 4, 1914, German troops crossed the border into neutral Belgium. Their huge siege cannons capture the city of Liège and the ancient town of Ypres, which is gassed, bombed and almost totally obliterated. Between late August 1914 and May 1915, 250,000 Belgian refugees arrive in Britain, the largest influx of political refugees in British history. Folkestone, Hythe, Sandgate and Cheriton Herald, Saturday the 17th of October 1914. The first contingent of wounded Belgian soldiers arrived Saturday and were conveyed in 16 motorcars to the Voluntary Aid Hospital, Ramsgate. In the evening, 1,000 arrived unexpectedly and the task of distributing them all was no light one. Several hundred were dispatched by train to Ramsgate, Margate, Canterbury, Bromley and Bickley. 170 were sent to the Royal Victoria Hospital and as the ordinary patients could not be disturbed, beds had to be made in corridors for some of the wounded. To convey the wounded to the hotel hospital, all the public motors and other motor vehicles in the town were also commandeered, and the long string of vehicles waiting outside the harbour extended beyond the pavilion hotel. The worst cases were conveyed in the Royal Army medical ambulance cars. Another 1,000 wounded arrived about 10 o'clock and they slept on board, being taken in the steamer to Dover the next morning. But as that town couldn't accommodate them, they were brought back to Folkestone. Many of them were destitute, while others had once been people of means, but now they were without anything in the world, except what they wore and what they brought as luggage. The Folkestone Refugee Committee provided the destitute ones with hot coffee and ham sandwiches. The second boat, the Marie Henrietta, brought 1,500 people, mostly wounded Belgian soldiers. They chatted with the other passengers, while many of them gave dum-dum bullets to their admirers. These dum-dums they had taken off dead German soldiers near Antwerp. On Wednesday, in addition to nearly 4,000 refugees brought to Folkestone on steamers, many came across on fishing trawlers and motorboats, whilst 130 people were disembarked from one of King Albert's private fishing boats. 
Over 2,600 were brought over under the care of Captain Young of the Kenilworth. This boat, a collier, belonging to London, had taken a cargo of coal to Antwerp. Wednesday, she left Ostend and was at sea all night with the passengers, who were mostly women and young children, standing up all the time, exposed to the night winds with not a morsel to eat. But fortunately, there was water, which was here and there passed around by the ship's crew. The captain, a good-hearted Scotsman, had seen the plight of these people at Ostend and his good nature caused him to bring them away. Later in the day, a fishing smack which had put to sea the previous afternoon from Ostend brought another 100, there being a large number of old women amongst these. The Princess Henrietta put in with 1,000 people. Her passengers were mostly poor people, Many of the richer classes had managed to reach England by hiring trawlers at high prices. Most of the poor arrivals were starving, and one of the crew of the steamer said food could not be obtained at any price in Ostend when they left. The gratitude of Belgian refugees is evoked in this poem, written in 1914 by Belgian poet Émile Camert. Je n'entends plus le son lointain des canons ennemis. Où sommes-nous, mon fils? Mon père, nous sommes en Angleterre. I hear no more the distant roar of the enemy's gun. Where are we, oh my son? My father, safe on England's shore. I hear no more the frantic wind amid the ropes moan. Again, my fumbling footsteps find firm sand with pebbles strewn. My son, are all our miseries o'er? Father, we stand on England's shore. Kind words I cannot understand are falling on my ear. Far, far am I from my own land. Why is their sound so dear? Oh, Father, it is England's speech that welcomes us upon the beach. Mon père, nous sommes en Helping Belgian refugees is considered to be a patriotic and important contribution to the war effort and is managed by local authorities. On the 28th of October 1914, Chairman Diaz of Kingsbury Urban District Council reported that he had formed a local committee for the purpose of looking after the interests in our district of Belgian refugees. Altogether, there were 2,500 such committees throughout Britain. 31st of October 1914, the Oxbridge and West Drayton Gazette. The Mary Wardell Convalescent Home, Stanmore, Middlesex, at the present moment is occupied temporarily as a hospital for Belgian soldiers under the management of the Wounded Allies Relief Committee, acting in consultation with the War Office and Red Cross Society. There are now upwards of 50 Belgian patients being treated in the home with an efficient staff of nurses and proper medical attendants. 
more patients are expected shortly. When we began our searching for the Grey Lady project in June 2019, the only clue to the Stanmore Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in the First World War was one black and white photograph reproduced in an illustrated history of the hospital by Derek Sayers. This photograph shows a group of three nurses and four men identified as Belgian soldiers. One of the men is seated in the centre of the group. He wears a dressing gown and in front of him is a blackboard with writing in chalk. It is written in French and states that this is a souvenir of their stay at the Mary Wardell Hospital, Stanmore, and is dated European War, 1914. It is signed The Inseparable Rifleman, followed by the men's names. The group is carefully posed outside what is now Eastgate House, which currently houses the administration offices of the RNOH. Perhaps the photograph was taken to mark the arrival of the first wounded Belgian soldiers at the Mary Wardell home. The three nurses in the 1914 photograph are likely to be from the Voluntary Aid Detachment. Known as VADs, they were a voluntary unit of civilians, providing nursing care for military personnel in the United Kingdom and the British Empire. They were deployed in the auxiliary military hospitals, like the Mary Wardell Hospital, set up to cope with initially the wounded Belgians and then the increasing numbers of wounded British and Empire servicemen. But as the battle in Flanders escalates, there is another battle escalating at home, a battle between trained nurses and the volunteers. The British Journal of Nursing Supplement, January the 30th, 1915. Statement prepared by the President of the National Council of Trained Nurses and submitted to the Director General, Army Medical Service, at the War Office. 1. The Standard of Nursing. The present organisation of the nursing of sick and wounded soldiers in military auxiliary hospitals at home and abroad is, in the opinion of the National Council of Trained Nurses, defective. Because the system and standard of nursing countenanced in them differs essentially from that defined as requisite by the War Office for the regular military hospitals and the territorial hospitals. The needs of a sick and wounded man, whether he is admitted to a regular hospital or to an auxiliary hospital, are the same. Yet no standard of nursing is defined and enforced for these auxiliary hospitals. And it not infrequently happens that the nursing is provided by members of voluntary aid detachments covered by one or two trained nurses under the administration of an untrained and inexperienced commandant and the service provided under these conditions cannot be considered either adequate or skilled. In time of war, the sound principle of including nursing experts on its committees has been disregarded. 
the executive committee is composed of 12 men. Again, there is not one representative of the nursing profession, though there are a few ladies representative of the aristocracy of various counties of England and Wales. The British Red Cross Society has deliberately excluded from its councils women possessing the necessary knowledge and has preferred to enlist the help of persons of wealth and social position, not only useless but dangerous when they assume professional knowledge which they do not possess. The National Council of Trained Nurses has some eminent supporters. Here is Viscount Isha, GCB, writing in the preface to War and Women, a 1913 book by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart, a suffragist and aid worker who created and commanded all women medical units to serve first in the Balkan Wars and then in the First World War. Nursing the sick and wounded in war is clearly women's work. The detailed arrangements, their plan and ordering are a sphere of activity for women in peace. As matters now stand, nursing schemes are worked out and stereotyped by the military authorities without advice or suggestion from those who in war will have to bear the chief burden. The plea has always been that the hierarchy of the Royal Army Medical Corps know all about war and its requirements, whereas women know nothing. This book disposes of that fallacy. January the 30th, 1915. British Journal of Nursing Supplement. On November the 2nd, 1915, the Matrons Council of Great Britain and Ireland passed the following resolution, which was subsequently forwarded to the British Red Cross Society. That in the opinion of this meeting, only nurses who are fully trained should be sent to nurse the sick and wounded in time of war, and that no base hospital can be considered properly equipped which has not such a staff of nurses. All over Britain, hospitals were filling up with the wounded, including the RNOH in Great Portland Street. Queen Alexandra visited the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Great Portland Street and inspected a number of pieces of embroidery work which have been done by wounded soldiers under the tuition of Lady Mary Dormer, whose father, the Earl of Denbigh, is chairman of the hospital. On screens were many examples of the embroidery, the surgeons have expressed their sense of the value of the work in helping the men to regain the use of their hands and fingers. The Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital was the first to be selected for the special treatment of soldiers with bad wounds of the arms and legs, and since early in 1915, 3,000 cases have passed through, while 170 beds since July the 1st have all been occupied by military patients. This link to the RNOH was discovered by Jane Robinson, a member of the Friends of St Paul's Cathedral, who has been researching the First World War altar frontal, given to St Paul's Cathedral in 1919. Accompanying the altar frontal is an illuminated memorial book, 
which lists the names of the ex-servicemen who contributed embroidery, including the names of servicemen cared for at the RNOH. This book contains the names of sailors and soldiers of the British Empire wounded in the Great War of 1914 to 1918, who, while lying in hospital, embroidered an altar frontal for St Paul's Cathedral in memory of their fallen comrades. The design is emblematical of the sufferings and triumphs of His Majesty's forces. British Journal of Nursing Supplement, January the 30th, 1915. The Aftermath of War. One of the results of the war, which will have to be faced in the near future, is the employment of disabled soldiers. Already, there are in this country a number of wounded Belgians who can never again serve with the colours for which they have fought so magnificently and their future must be regarded as a trust by every able-bodied person whose life and the lives of those dear to them are the gifts of those who have defended them from the onslaughts of a pitiless enemy. There are now to be seen in our streets pitiful examples of the ruthlessness of war. A correspondent says, Anyone who will be at pains to convey these crippled men through London will be instantly struck by the looks of pity and sympathy cast upon them by both men and women all along the way. Policemen will hold up the traffic for them. Stolid railway porters will help them along like brothers. Unable to speak our language, they yet use a common speech that instantly reaches all hearts. And the stiff right arm that has lost its office, the hand wanting its fingers the paralysed shoulder, the bent back, the twisted foot that never will step out again, such are the syllables of dumb appeal. At the present moment, there is ever vividly before us our debt to these brave Belgian soldiers, for we realise vividly the destruction in Flanders and contrast it with the security we enjoy. May 1915, The Care of the Wounded, A Home for Disabled Belgians. The opening of the Home for Disabled Belgian Soldiers at 45 Courtfield Gardens, Kensington, on May the 10th, under the auspices of the Wounded Allies Relief Committee, was the occasion of a very interesting ceremony. The announcement that the home would be opened by Her Imperial and Royal Highness, the Princess Napoleon, attracted a large and distinguished company. The 40 inmates of the house, almost all of whom are short of at least one limb, acted as a guard of honour and, on the arrival of the princess, who was accompanied by Prince Napoleon, sang the Belgian national anthem. 
The object of the home is to afford a temporary shelter for those men who ordinarily settled in the country have occasion to come to London to be fitted at the committee's expense with artificial limbs, and also for men discharged from convalescent homes at short notice without allocation of other quarters. It was a very sad spectacle to see so many fine young men maimed for life, and we hope that the home will receive the support it deserves. It was hard to realise that those bright smiling faces could belong to the victims of this hideous war. These wounded Belgian soldiers in the streets of London are just the beginning. By the end of the First World War, over 40,000 British servicemen had lost one or more limbs. The unprecedented number of amputee ex-servicemen is a huge challenge for the UK and its allies, and the provision of today's prosthetics and orthotics has evolved from the challenges of their rehabilitation. Since November the 11th, 1928, the last post has been sounded at the Menin Gate Memorial in Ypres, Belgium, dedicated to the British and Commonwealth soldiers who were killed in Ypres during World War I and whose graves are unknown. The citizens of Belgium wanted to express their gratitude. So every evening at eight o'clock, buglers from the last post association close the road which passes under the memorial and sound the last post. Let us end with the ceremony during the time of COVID, without crowds and with the accompaniment of birdsong. Episode 5, August 1914, is written and directed by Nicola Lane and funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. It is created in collaboration with the participants and Radio Broccoli. For more information and details of the cast, go to www.peglegproductions.org forward slash podcasts.